Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. God's people are often referred to as exiles upon the earth, people living in a foreign land, among a foreign culture. If that's the case for God's people individually, what does it mean for the church? This is a three-part series about how to be a church in exile. Welcome to part two of a series we just began last week. Obviously, that's how we get to part two. Uh, And it's a series called Church in Exile. And so that all looks a little familiar because it was based out of a series we just did about two months ago called Life in Exile. And what we were doing, we were looking at the idea of Daniel. And if, if Daniel was picked up and taken to Babylon and he lived in exile, but ended up being one of the most influential people at that time and and on the leadership and on the people around him and even on us today we still read his story the question would be is if a bunch of individuals who lived in exile with great influence came together as a church should it have any impact on us what would it mean to be a church in exile basically there's the question how can we as a church family have great influence in the world around us just like daniel had great influence That's the question that I felt like God prompted me with as we were doing the series. What does this mean for us? And so that's what we are looking at. Three things in particular. It's a three-part series. Three things in particular that I I feel like God would say, if you really want to have an incredible influence in the world around you, in the city and in this community, there are three things you might want to look at, seeing if you can do them a little bit better than you do. And, And it's just being honest that every church has some things they could do better. Is that okay that we actually say that about ourselves? Okay, so let's go and just logically here, because I didn't do this in the first service, and they looked like they wanted to throw something at me. So for you guys, is anybody here perfect? Okay. Uh, And we're not the perfect church we just said, right? Okay. So if we're going to talk about some things we could do a little bit better, chances are the Holy Spirit might convict us along the way. And so if you get a little convicted today, or if I step on your toes, just don't throw anything at me, okay? Because we just want to talk as a family, like, how can we make a bigger difference in the world around us, okay? So uh, the first thing that we talked about last week was if God actually gave us an incredible influence and, and lots of people came and said, we want to follow Jesus with you, what would that, how would we disciple these people? And see, here's the thing, we are going to make disciples the same way we are disciples. So last week we talked about how we really wanted to, to change that, that there's really something in our culture that we're going to try and make a shift in. And so if you missed last week and you want to know how we are going to be disciples so that how we can make disciples, uh, I encourage you to go back and catch that one. Today what I want to talk to you about is what it means for all of us to be a part of a church family. And so I know, remember for me, I remember for me the first time that I uh, had the experience of being a small part of something big and meaningful. I grew up in a very small town here in South Carolina, went to a small high school, came from a relatively small family. Everything I knew was small. We had one stoplight. That's just life. And then suddenly you go off to college, and college is huge. And there are more people in your college than there were in the town you grew up in. And suddenly you are tiny, and life is big. But honestly, that wasn't the biggest, biggest problem for me. I was ready for a big college. What I wasn't ready for is I was a music major. Most of you have heard that kind of stuff before. So when I was in high school, I was in a small high school band, and, and I was the man. I'm just saying, because I was a trumpet player. And anybody in here who knows about being in the band, it is all about the trumpets. Come on now, isn't it right? Because I, I played first trumpet. That meant solos, and that meant we always played the melody. We always had the cool parts. We, we always did the cool stuff. 
So I was, I was first trumpet. I go off to college and join one of these bands because anybody ever watch like Saturday football, you watch college and, and the, the band over there is like massive. It's incredible. Well, we had a great school of music. This was one of the best schools of music in the state. As a result of that, we had over 300 music majors in our band alone, in the marching band on Saturdays. It was, it was pretty incredible. So if you go from being like the, the top of everything to suddenly you are a freshman in a group of over 300 music majors, you used to be one of about 10 trumpets, now you are one of 52 music major trumpets, and, and you're the freshman. Guess, guess what you're not doing? You're not doing solos. You're not even playing the first trumpet part. You're not even playing the second trumpet part. There's this other thing out there called third trumpet. And, and you usually give it to the people that don't know how to play because they only have to play like two notes because it's not the melody, it's not the harmony, it's not the first harmony, it's like some second harmony part somebody makes up. Like I remember practicing the Star Spangled Banner, it sounds like this. I mean, that's it. And I'm thinking, I've been playing these two notes since I was in sixth grade. I don't need to do this. This is doing nothing for me. Be careful with that thought. And then we had our first game because I was ready to quit. I didn't want to do anything with the band anymore. If all I'm going to do is play two notes and march around and be lost in a big old crowd, I'm just quitting. But, you know, they figured out how to deal with people like me. They made it a graduation requirement. You want a music degree, you're going to be in the band. That's the way that works. Okay, I'll be in the band, but I don't care. I don't like you people. I'm not getting anything out of this until the first game. First game. Here's what the coolest, craziest thing, because when I went to school there, the football team had never accomplished anything. I'm not sure they had accomplished the first down, but it, it, was not, it was not good. And the band was filled with music majors, and so I had no idea what to expect as a freshman. First time it happens, we go out there, we do our little show, we do everything, you know, sit through the game. It's cold. I was, went to school in the mountains and everything. And, and then when the game was over, true story, over half of the crowd goes and sits on the field and waits on us to do a concert for him. I'm like, yeah, she went there. Yeah, she knows what I'm talking about. I'm like, are you kidding me? Wait a minute, what is that? I thought we just did a football game. You're telling me that the football game was just like the warm-up act? Finally, Jesus is on his throne. People have figured out music rules the earth. This is awesome. Anyway, so they sat down. Come on, y'all, give me a break. I'm a musician. So seriously, they sat down. We did this concert. They cheered louder for us than when the football team actually scored. I'm, I'm, it's just true. It was that amazing. And suddenly, from, from me thinking like, man, this is stupid. I only get to play two notes. I'm just playing third trumpet. It just hit me. Like this human emotion just wells up inside of me called pride. We're awesome. They think we're awesome. We are awesome. And they don't know that I play third trumpet. They don't know that I'm a freshman. All they know is I'm a part of the awesomeness. Like, I'm awesome. Question for you. So when, when did you ever get, have you ever had the opportunity where you discovered that being a part of something was way more powerful than what you could ever do by yourself? And so hopefully you've had that kind of experience. And the question would be, at what point does we come before me? And since we're talking about the church, let me just go ahead and tell you what we're really talking about today. At what point does we come before me in the church? And so we're going to look at one very brief, very short little passage today. It's only two little verses put back to back. We're not even going to get all the way through it. We're going to have to finish it next week. Not because it's long or complicated, but because it says two dramatically different things about the church from the way you and I are used to living 
And so if we're going to be a church in exile, I think we need to look at these two things. So the first one we'll do today. Next week, we'll catch the second one. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind my head. And we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Famous verses. And it says this, As you come to him, that is Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. All right, that was all one of those long disclaimer clauses you have in the English language that's setting you up for this. As you do what Jesus has done, he was a stone that God did something with. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You and you and you and actually all of you are being built up as a spiritual house like living stones. And so I want to walk you through what is a very common perception of how we think our, our lives work, how we think the Christian life is. And, and so here's just, just simply, I think everybody in the room will agree with me. I would say that almost everybody in this room would think what I'm thinking and almost every Christian that we could find somewhere, if we were to put up what I'm about to put on the screen for you, that's, yes, that's the Christian life. Okay, so it starts like this. It starts with me. Because here's what happens. I become a believer. I become a follower. And so I get the idea that now that I am following Jesus, God is building me. Okay? So God's building me. Are they with me? They're not with me. And there we go. There, there we go. Look at that. And so God is building me. So now I need to become more like God. I need to be spiritually mature. I need to read my Bible. I need to pray. I need to do all these things. So let's see. The first thing I got to do is get a relationship with God. I need some God in my life. So I go, I get God to bring God into my life. I start praying, reading the Bible. I'm doing these things. And I realize I need to know more about God because I don't know that much about God. I need to worship God. I need to do these different things. And so I'm going to go to church. And so I bring some church into my life, and it helps me grow, and, and it helps God build me, and it's a part of that. Well, the good news now is we live in a modern era. So we no longer have to only listen to one guy preach on Sunday. We can listen to, like, all the world experts of the largest pastors preach online all week long. And so you guys leave here, and you go, here's somebody who really knows how to preach, right? Is that what you Oh, thank you, guys. I love you. The services didn't do that, just so you know. They just sat silent. I was like, awkward. Anyway, that's why I love you guys. All right. And, and so you go and you start listening online. You get some online sermons and some books so you can learn even more about God. You get all of this stuff because we've got to be the most spiritually mature Christians we can because God is building me. And then we look around and realize, hey, you know what? I'm not the best at this. There's somebody over there. They could help me a little bit. Let me add some people into my life. And so now I've got other people. So I've got some God, some church, and some learning, and some people. And I've got everything. And I'm, I'm, I'm just becoming the best Christian version of me. God is building me. Does that make sense? What's wrong with that? Is anything wrong with that? Well, let me show you something else, at least what I see in the Bible. It's a little bit simpler diagram. It goes like this. There is God, and God is building something, and it is called the church. God is building the church. You see, a common perception is God is building me, but another perception is that God is building his church. I mean, I'm not making this up. Jesus was the one who said, I will build my church church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it the bible tells you and me to strive to excel in building up the church isn't that interesting there's a whole lot of, i could have done a lot more of this so again we get the idea god is building me it turns out the bible says god is building we we think god is building me god is building we and and so i actually think that we could go as far as to say it's it's a more biblical idea 
to think of God building we instead of God building me. And, and here's why I say that, because I want you to look at both images put together and just tell me, what do you see? So they do that. What's at the center of each? You see, the one on the left, me, is at the center. I just got a good question for you. When in human history has anything good ever come out of me being at the center? But what could God do if the church were at the center? Now I realize that's a little anecdotal. That doesn't necessarily solve the problem. But here is the question that we really need to ask. If we want to be a church that is in exile, that means the majority of people around us do not believe what we believe and do what we do. And you may say, well, we're in the Bible Belt, Jimmy. That's not true. And I would say, yeah, we're in the Bible Belt. But I promise you, statistically, more people are in bed right now than worshiping God in a church. There are more people who do not think that this is a serious part of their life. So the question we have to ask if you want to be a part of a church that actually makes a difference in its world, is answer this for me. Is the church a part of our lives? Or are we a part of the church? Is the church something we add in to our activities? Or is the church our identity? And so when we read that verse, it says that you, like living stones. So I went yesterday and I bought a rock. This is a four-pound rock, and I know that because I had to buy it by the pound. And I thought it would be an incredibly helpful demonstration if I could show you what God is doing. So we get the idea that you, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. So my first choice would have been to, to buy one of these, to say, this is you. And then I would have hired a brick mason and bought a thousand more and had them build something right here on this stage so you could get the idea. Problem is, the worship team rejected that because there would have been no room left on the stage. So best second choice, I'm going to show you a picture. So check this out. This versus... You, like living stones, are being built up into something way bigger. Now, it doesn't matter what that is or where that is. It just happens to be a pretty building made out of stone. In particular, it happens to be a chapel. And so, hey, it's kind of symbolic that God is building us into something. But we, we get too focused on the, the rock. But here's the thing. Because we believe God is building me and God wants me to be spiritually mature. So God says, oh, look at that sharp edge of pride. Let me just knock off that sharp edge of pride. And, and oh, how about over here? Here's a little another sharp edge of, of you know, just arrogance and, and meanness. And, and over here, there's, there, you know, not enough kindness. And, and let me just shape this. And I'm going to make this an incredibly beautiful rock. You're going to be the most beautiful version of you that you could ever be. And imagine God doing all of that work and he takes off all the rough edges and he takes off all the sin issues and he he takes off all of the things that hurt other people and you become the most beautiful, most perfectly shaped rock. You know what you're good for by yourself? You'll make a great doorstop. But if God takes that beautifully shaped rock, perfectly shaped for a perfect spot in what he's building upon the earth, then we can be amazing. You see, if you're walking down the street of Columbia and, and, or, or anywhere and you see something like that, you're going to notice it. But if you see something like this across the street holding a door open, you're not going to notice it. And, and so, look, I know right now that there's some objection. There's some people going, uh, I think you're, uh, you're right on the edge of something here, Jimmy. I'm not sure I want to agree with you because the Bible is full of stuff that talks about how I have a purpose. I have a destiny, how God is doing a work in my life. And it sounds like you're saying that's not important. Oh, no, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. That's incredibly important because God is shaping you. God is making you mature. God is making you into the perfect rock just to be part of it. 
to be part of something. God is turning you into what you are part of, what he is doing on the earth. He's doing something great. And he is not after saying, oh, let me tell you what here, Bob, Bob, you got, just, let's work on this. We're going to knock this off here, Bob. I'm going to make that there perfect. Bob. Oh, look at that. Bob is the most beautiful rock I ever created. Let me put this right here. Hey, Sarah, come on over here. Let's turn you into the most beautiful rock. We get the idea that God is, is, is getting this great, beautiful rock collection. Because he wants the most beautiful rock collection on the earth. And he could do that. He's God after all. But God is not into getting a great rock collection. God is building his church upon the earth. And he gave it a mission. And he gave it something to actually do. And it's powerful when you think about that. It changes our lives. It changes the way that we see everything. God is shaping us to put us into something that is bigger than what any of us could ever do alone. True story. I don't know if you know this. Just a couple of hours north of here, right across the state line in North Carolina, way back uh, more than 100 years ago, this, this little kid, 12-year-old kid, was wandering the family farm, and he came across a really pretty rock. It was a really pretty rock. And, and it was 17 pounds. This one's four, to give you an idea, to compare. It was 17 pounds, but he thought, this is just the coolest rock I've ever seen. And we always have a problem, you know, keeping the door uh, open and closed like it's supposed to be. So he thought, we're going to use this really gorgeous yellowish goldish looking 17 pound rock as a doorstop and they did because they didn't know what it was it became the founding of reed's gold mine in north carolina if you don't know the story but here's the point this beautiful rock was just a doorstop until somebody figured out its value and how its value became a part of something else and what it fit into and, and someone came along one day and well little trick of deception and just like us we're so focused on just becoming this pretty rock that the enemy can lie to us and satan is a liar and so somebody came along one day and they 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 knew what that rock was that's a pretty doorstop you have there how much would you sell it for it's way way long time ago negotiations like how about a dollar worked their way up to the kid thought he was getting a good deal after all he was selling a rock he got a whopping three dollars and fifty cents does the enemy sell you short on what your value really is if you were seen for what you are and used for what you were made to do? If there's any passage in the Bible that says this better than anything else, I think it's Ephesians 3.10 says this. His purpose was that now through the church, through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. It is through the church that God does everything that God is doing. When God looks down on the earth, God sees the church. The church is his family. Do you guys understand that? He looks down and he sees his family. He sees everybody. When I look at my children, I see my family. I see my wife. I see who we are and what we are together. I don't see one little wandering child in the backyard. I see a part of my family. When God looks at the earth, God sees the church. Everything God does on the earth, God does through the church. God is building his church. God is waiting for the completion of his church. Satan hates the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus' body is the church. The bride of will Jesus' bride will be the church. Everything is about the church. Everything God is doing is about you and me together, not one living stone. But it's about the spiritual house that he's building out of these living stones. And you are a living stone. And you should be way more than just a doorstop. So much more value in you. But our value is found when we fit into that beautiful picture that was there. When we figure out exactly like you belong here and you belong there. And 
Look what we can build together and the influence we could have in our community if we figured that out. The problem, unfortunately, is that we've taken what God meant to be a family thing and turned it into an individual thing. It really is, unfortunately, just a product of our, our culture because we grow up in a world that says, I can't wait to get out of here. When I turn 18, man, I am on my own and I am just, I'm, going, I'm going to college. I'm only coming home for Thanksgiving. That's it. I'm just out here. I'm going to do my thing. And so we do the same thing in the church world. We just have this idea that me is the center of everything. And so if we really want to be a church that has massive influence, here's what we've got to do. We've got to be committed to a church family. We've got to see the we before the me. And let me tell you two things I'm not saying because I could, that could be seriously misinterpreted. Two things I am not saying when I say we need to be committed to a church family. We need to put the we before the me. I am not saying that we need more members. We've got names on a membership roster I haven't seen in months. I'm not saying this is a membership drive. This is not a membership drive. We don't do a membership drive. So I'm not saying we just need more members. No. And I'm also not saying when I say we need to see the we before the me, I'm not saying we're selfish. That's not what that means. So I don't think you are. We have some incredibly generous and gracious people here at Grace Life. And I think you're wonderful people. It's not saying you're selfish. It's just saying that we have a perspective of the Western church that says God is building me. God is building me. And because even, I mean, it's what I do. I spend so much time preaching sermons on how to help you become who God wants you to be that we don't spend enough time talking about how that fits into something else. It's not ever on your own. It isn't. But it's a part of what God is doing. One of us will never change Columbia. It's not going to happen. It's going to take all of us together changing Columbia. And I don't know about you, but I want to go down in history here in this world in this time as having made a difference. And nobody is ever going to visit Grace Life and say, man, have you been to that church? Let me tell you what. Those are the prettiest, prettiest rocks I've ever seen. I mean, every one of them just smooth and polished. They'll never offend you. All the sharp edges have been chipped off and they're great. I tell you what, man, just the nicest rocks you'll ever meet. That church doesn't change the world. But it's when we stop being a collection of rocks scattered around a room and we come together and understand what God is building, what God is doing, and something bigger than that. So I just want to appeal to you. When going to church is an activity of our spiritual growth, we're missing the point because God is not building you to go to church. God is building His church to reach the world. Can I say that one again? God is not building you to go to church. God is building His church to reach the world. And so we get to the real point of, okay, we started this by saying there are some things God wants us to do better if we're going to be a church that makes a difference. So what are the things that we need to do better? And I'm just going to tell you as I say these, I don't mean them personally. And if I do step on your toes, somebody joked with me after the first service, hey, it's all the offended people that needed to hear it. So <laughs> there you go. I didn't say it. I just repeated it. But this isn't personal because what I'm about to say is actually universal, in my opinion, to the church in the Western world. I think that the things I'm about to go through and say, this is why we may not be as influential as we need to be. I could stand up uh, in front of almost any church and say, these are the things that are helping or preventing you from being as influential as you need to be in your community. And so I'm not in charge of the whole church, though. I'm not in charge of the entire Western church. I'm not in charge of the church on the planet. That's Jesus' job. But I feel like Jesus told me to talk to us about it because my job is to help lead this family 
to make the biggest difference in this city I can. So here are the four things that I think we need to see if we can do a little bit better at. The first one is to invest relationally. You see, here's the point. God actually uses multiple of these to make us who we are. He rubs us against each other and he uses us to shape and put us together. If he wants to build something beautiful, he puts us in little groups. And so we talked about this last week. It's called discipleship. It turns out that one stone works with another stone to actually help that one fulfill its destiny and its purpose. You are a part of each other. Here's the question is, do you even see each other? Do we know each other? Look, I know you probably came with or know the person seating, seated directly beside you. I want everybody to take a moment and look to the left and look to the right. And I want you to see someone that you haven't seen. Yeah, you glanced and you knew that body was there, but look, look around the room and see somebody that you haven't seen. We are a part of helping each other become who we're called to be. Now, that was last week's message on discipleship. I'm not going to go do that again. If you missed it, you need to go hit that. Here's number two. Here's where every church, I think, has some difficulty. What we need to do if we want to be better at influence in our world, we do need to give financially. Now, look, nobody ever likes it when I mention that, but here's the thing. There is a me and a we to everything. There's a me and a we to why God calls us to give. The me, God wants to know, am I first? Am I first? Or is, is your new car first? Or is, is you know, your eating out budget first? A am I first? I want to be first. I want to be first in your time. I want to be first in your priorities. I want to be first in everything. That includes, I want to be first in your money. So when God says, will, will you give, there's a me thing. Just God's just saying, is, it, is he first to me? And, and you could do that, and you could do it better than anybody in the room, but you would still be in that paradigm that's like me in the middle, add a little God, add a little church, give a little money, you know, that whole sort of thing. There's a we part to giving. And that is that God has called us to do a mission. He's given us a mission to reach this world. In particular, to start right here in this city. And unfortunately, none of it's free. The electricity around you, not free. Airplane tickets for mission trips, not free. Anything we do is not free. And so God said, here's a mission. I want you to reach Columbia. I want you to reach this community. I want you to reach this state. I want you to reach your world. I want you to reach people. I want you to make a difference. So here is your mission and you get to fund it. Are you kidding me, God? I mean, come on, look, we're near a, a, an army base here, so I just want you guys to, to, to roll with me here. All, all the soldiers and, and air, airmen and everything else we got in the room. What if they told you you're deploying Tuesday and you're paying for it? Go home, see your wife, ask her for some spending money because we need to put fuel in these airplanes. That'd be crazy, absurd, wouldn't it? Like, that's not fair. Is it fair that God tells you and me we have to fund the mission? Well, no, if that's the way it really goes down. But there is another way to look at it, and that is that God actually is funding his own mission. He just let each of us hold 10% of the cost. I'll move on before. There's only one rock in the room on purpose. Uh, number three is serve sacrificially. Serve sacrificially. Because, see, here's the, the, the beauty of it. When you're in a family, you do things for the sake of the family, whatever needs to be done. But that's not what I'm saying today. That's another message for another day. Here's the thing. When there are things that need to be done for the sake of the mission, you do what needs to be done. So here's a perfect example. You know, go back to the mentality of, you want me, a music major, to play third trumpet? Are you kidding me? Don't you know who I am? Okay, so what if somebody came up to you and said, would you help make coffee on Sundays? 
in your coffee, make coffee. I mean, you want me to like go out on the street and proclaim Jesus? No, you want me to go to the kitchen and make coffee? Yeah, see, here's the reason. I want you to think about this. We don't make coffee for you. Y'all know that? We don't make coffee for you. We don't make coffee because you're thirsty. If you haven't figured it out, you drive by Starbucks on your way here. You do. There's one, one mile that direction. You drive by Starbucks on your way here. If you're thirsty, if you want coffee, you can get your own coffee. Why do we have coffee? Part of the mission. See, I want you to imagine somebody coming to church for the first time. And somebody hasn't been to church in many years, and their grandmother used to drag them to church, and now they've got some neighbor that kind of keeps harassing them, and God's working in their heart, so they're feeling a little like, maybe I should do that, a little bit of something going on there. They don't really know what it is, but they're thinking, I will do this one time, and I'll prove why I don't need these people. They're judgmental. They're critical. I remember what the people were like in my grandmother's church. They're cold. It's, a, it's just a horrible environment, and I'm just going to prove it. I'm going to go one more time, and they get out of the car, and there is everybody in these blue T-shirts to greet them. Now, look, we're not going to be accused of being judgmental. We might be called sloppy, but we will not be called judgmental because, I mean, it, it takes a lot to not be dressed up as much as our first impressions team there, you know, already had T-shirts and everything. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to Grace Life. Glad to have you. But here's the thing. So first time coming to church, hey, welcome to Grace Life. How are you guys doing? You want some free coffee? What? Like, you're, you're nice. You don't care how I'm dressed. You don't, you don't care that my kids are, like, already running in circles and screaming and yelling and and the child care is free too. The nursery's free. And the coffee is free. Oh, I bet I got to stand out in the lobby and drink it so I don't mess up the sacred room in there, you know. No, actually, bring it on in. Spill it on the carpet. People do every single week. Uh, we got a carpet cleaner. That's, that's what we do, you know. Just, yeah, no, no, no. Seriously, because it, it's not about the building, it's about you. And they go, and that mentality and that kind of mission is why we had more people commit to making Jesus their king in the four weeks that we just finished that series than we did any other four week series we've ever done. How cool is that? Now, why do I use that as an example? Because if I came to you and said, would you make coffee? You may say, I don't even drink coffee. Guess what? Did you know that 50%, I got it wrong in the first service, and they corrected me. 50% of the coffee team doesn't drink coffee. 50% of the people that get out of bed and come over here at 7 a.m. to make coffee all day long, for all of you people, they hate the stuff. They think it tastes like burnt water. They wish it didn't exist upon the planet. And why do they do it? They do it for the sake of the mission. They do it so that somebody can come to church for the first time. And they just have to make a lot because you people are going to drink it before that person gets here. But what if somebody comes? How about the people who keep the children? I mean, I could do this all day long. Serve sacrificially. And number four, probably the one I'd love to talk about the most if I had the time, but I'm not going to take that much time, is this one. Endure conflict. If I could get on one soapbox about what's wrong with the church in the West... It is that we go from one church to another as soon as somebody says something. Or we think they said something. Do you know how often we misinterpret what people say? I Seriously, I sat down with a husband this week. A guy this week was talking to me. He said, hey, I just, I just had a question for you. Um, you said something, and I thought you meant this. Um, my wife thought you meant this. And I, I, it occurred to me, like, yeah, English language, you know what? That could mean either one. Here's what I meant. It wasn't about conflict. He wasn't upset. He just literally was asking a question. And it, so here's the thing. How many times have you thought so-and-so said something about you and you found out you, you totally misinterpreted that and you, you misheard that? I've got family members all the time will come and, hey, I need to talk to you. You're a pastor. I was at church last week and I heard that, that Sally said such and such about me. I don't know it. I mean, literally one of the times one of my family members said that somebody doesn't want to sit beside them because their breath stinks. 
I'm going to find a new church. What? Are you kidding me? Just sit on the other side of the room. I mean, first of all, it's gossip. How do you even know it's true? And you're going to abandon your spiritual family just because you think somebody said that maybe you needed a tic-tac one day? Can we get a grip here? You see, here's, here's where I stand when I look at this. Every time somebody's like, let's go make a difference in the city, these four things go through my mind. All right, you're right. This would be an amazing outreach. If we did this, we could see like 200 people join overnight and say, help me follow Jesus. So I've got to ask the question, do I have 200 people in here who are willing to invest relationally to disciple them? Because it would actually be bad responsibility of me to go out and to see a bunch of people say, oh, I'd like to follow Jesus with you and go, oh, well, hey, thanks. Go sit over there because we don't care about you. That's what the the leaders of the church have to ask every time is, is anybody going to invest relationally? How about this? That's a great idea. That outreach would be awesome. Who's paying for it? How about this? That outreach is awesome. That'd be great. Is anybody going to do this with us? But you know the one that breaks my heart the most? Because I'll be honest, I don't have to ask those three questions very often at Grace Life. You guys are generous, you're gracious, and when we say charge, you go. Our biggest problem all year was like, we're doing outreach, we've got too many people coming. It's like, just let them, just let them. We're never going to tell people not to come to an outreach. But here's the one that hurts my heart the most. That outreach is a great idea. Let's go do that. And you know who could help with that? Oh, no, they're not here anymore. Because they got mad at what so-and-so said. And although they're perfect, they're now sitting on the back row of the church down the street. And although they'd be perfect at that church, they're not telling anybody because they're so hurt and so offended, they're just going to hide on the back row of the church down the street. You see, here's the thing. I don't have time for this sermon. You just got to take my word for it or go find it online. I already preached it before. Conflict is the number one thing God uses to work in our lives. It's the number one thing he, he, he does because it reveals our pride it reveals our unforgiveness it reveals our arrogance it reveals our wrong perspectives it reveals our lack of compassion for the other person we're having conflict with conflict shows us everything ungodly about us so conflict is the number one thing that god does to make us more like him and in conflict we have an opportunity to demonstrate the number one thing that christians are supposed to do before the rest of the world and that is to forgive So if we have the number one way to demonstrate we're Christians and the number one way to grow as Christians in conflict, why are we so surprised that we have conflict? Why are we so surprised that you go to a non-perfect church with non-perfect people and then there's conflict? So why is our first choice to go, oh, I had a problem with that dude. I'm leaving. What? Are you kidding me? You don't need a new church. You need to grow up. Y'all just learned a trick clap and I'll shut up. <laughs>